Let us pray. Our almighty and most gracious God, you have set before us this day through your church the reading of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Open our ears and our hearts to embrace that passion, to hear it, and to see that it is for us. That each of us would see and hear that Jesus went to the cross on our behalf and renew us and deliver us from our sins that we might know You, Father, through that same Jesus Christ in whom we pray. Amen. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. This day is a strange and tough day, beginning with Palm Sunday and then suddenly moving all the way to the end of that holy week, to the Passion, to Jesus dying for our sins. And it's hard to figure out how to bring this together, how to preach a simple sermon that's not going to stretch for hours to drive us into that reality of what Jesus has done for us. I don't know what I'm doing. But nonetheless, the Spirit speaks. The Spirit draws us to Himself. The Spirit calls us to Himself because of His Word that He has given to us. The Word of the Lord. The Word that we read week in and week out here in our gathered worship. The Word that we read throughout our days. The Word that we hear from is given to us by the Spirit Himself through those that God had chosen to write it down. And so now, 2,000 years later, we continue to hear from this Word and we hear this morning about Palm Sunday and the Passion. We hear about Jesus entering into Jerusalem and the people responding to Him, the people crying out to Him, the people celebrating Him as a King, as the Lord, as the ruler of them. But just like I don't know what I'm doing, not only this morning, but in pretty much every area of my life, these people didn't know what they were doing. They didn't grasp or understand the significance of this moment for them. The significance of the moment of seeing Jesus upon that donkey riding into Jerusalem at the beginning of the week before the Passover, when all the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pilgrims were coming into Jerusalem, streaming in, walking, And here comes one riding on a donkey. And the people intuitively understood that something was being stated in that moment. Though they didn't understand it, and like I don't know what I'm going to do next, they didn't know what they were going to do next, but they just acted instinctively and they began praising and crying out to this man Jesus. It probably wasn't 100% spontaneous. Jesus had many followers, and there were probably those who began singing and crying out, but nonetheless, the rest of the crowd joined in. The rest of the crowd, recognizing and understanding who He is, who had heard of those stories, cried out alongside these people. But there's many significant things occurring in this story. The first thing that occurs in this story is they are drawing near to Jerusalem, going through Bethpage and Bethany and over the Mount of Olives through the eastern gate. Jesus sends the people ahead, sends a couple of disciples to go borrow a donkey. It seems so strange. Why would Jesus want a donkey? 
But he goes and says, Go and find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. It's even more strange that it's one upon which no one has ever sat that he wants to borrow a very specific donkey, a very specific pack animal to ride in on. There's a significance to that having not been ridden upon. It's part of the sacrificial requirements for some of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. That certain sacrifices could not have been used in ordinary ways before they're brought to be sacrificed. The sacrifice of a red heifer necessary for cleansing after interacting with a dead body, that heifer was required to have never had a yoke laid upon its neck, to have never been a pack animal, to have never been an animal that did labor like that in order for it to be used for sacrifice. And likewise, the Philistines, when they had captured the Ark of the Covenant and they discovered that they did not want to keep it because it was powerful and it was causing them trouble, even they understood the significance of animals that had never been used appropriately. And so they put it on a wagon and they yoked to it two cows, two milk cows that had never had a yoke upon their necks and they just turned them loose. They understood the significance of a sacrifice and a usage by the Lord being an animal that had never been used for regular work. And so here Jesus picks an animal that had never been ridden upon to ride in on it into Jerusalem, and he borrows it to use, like so many other times in his life, he borrows. He borrowed a boat to go out into the Sea of Galilee to preach. He borrows people's cloaks to put upon this donkey to, to ride on it. He borrows a little boy's bread and multiplies it to feed over 5,000 men and probably over 10,000, including the women and children. So Jesus borrows this donkey and rides upon it into Jerusalem. And like I said, there is significance there in riding that donkey for normally pilgrims would not ride any animal. They would walk if they are able. They would walk across the Mount of Olives and come into the eastern gate of Jerusalem there near the temple. But here Jesus is riding upon a donkey into Jerusalem, which in and of itself was a kingly move. If you go back to 1 Kings 1, you hear about David preparing for Solomon to be coronated, to be made king of Israel. And what does he tell his people to do, to tell his servants to do? They tell him to take Solomon and put him upon my own donkey, my own mule, and have him ride in to be anointed, to be consecrated, to be set apart as the king, to be crowned and coronated and celebrated. And for the people to shout, long live King Solomon. And became a practice amongst not only the Jews, but other peoples. For kings to ride upon mules and donkeys as they come in peace to a city. But there, right there at the crux, at the center of all of this, though, is that picture of Solomon riding into Jerusalem upon a donkey, upon a mule. Riding in to be the king. To be the prince of peace, the king of peace. But that wasn't the fulfillment That wasn't ultimately what God intended for King Solomon to be the true son of David at the end of the day. For Solomon fell away. Solomon turned from the Lord. He worshipped idols and his heart was turned. But nonetheless, God was still going to fulfill the promise of 2 Samuel 7. And that is done in Jesus. 
In 2 Samuel 7, David wants to build a house to build a temple for Yahweh, but Yahweh says, no, I will build you a house. I will make you a dynasty that will last forever. I will put one of your sons upon the throne forever and ever. And Solomon was the first fulfillment of that, riding in on a mule to be crowned king. And he did build a temple. He built a house for the Lord, a dwelling place for him. But that was not the dwelling place that the Lord ultimately was desiring. It fulfilled the mission of God there in Israel for a time. For God would dwell in that one place and people would stream to Him and come to Him as Israel followed Him, as Israel obeyed Him, as Israel listened. But Israel would turn away and that house would be destroyed and rebuilt and made greater and greater under Herod, made larger and larger. But it was never the true fulfillment of what God intended. For God intended Himself to dwell amongst all the people. And that He Himself would take on human form. He would incarnate Himself into this world. God the Son coming down. And being, coming Jesus of Nazareth in the womb of Mary. And He would be the true temple. He would be the true presence of God. He would be the true King. And here he is riding into Jerusalem, declaring that he is all that they had been expecting. He had always sought for quiet around his nature, quiet around his Messiahship. He would heal people and ask them not to tell others, to keep silent. But here on this Palm Sunday, just a few days before the day he would be crucified, he publicly declares that he is the King, he is the Messiah, he is the one who has come to save God's people. He is the king they desire, but they don't understand what he is to be doing. They expect him to be enthroned upon the throne of David. To throw the Herods off of the thrones that have occupied there in Jerusalem. And to take over Jerusalem. They expect him to overthrow the Romans. But that's not what he's coming to do. For his throne is not a chair to sit upon, but his throne will be the cross. For he will take our sins to himself and declare himself the true King and Savior of the world. And so Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the people begin celebrating. And they begin waving palm branches on His behalf, celebrating the coming of the King, celebrating the reign and the rule and the conquering God that they serve, celebrating the King that this God has sent to be in their presence. Mark here doesn't say that it was palm leaves. He just says leafy branches from the fields. It's over in the Gospel of John that we hear it declaratively stated that it is palm branches that the people wave. And this again is a sign of the conquering king, a sign of the conquering God that the people of Israel serve. There's not really an Old Testament foundation for the waving of palm branches at the king. But it has happened in recent history for the Israelites, for these Jews, in 1 Maccabees, it tells us of, this, of Simon Maccabeus expelling the soldiers that were in the citadel at Jerusalem, and then he cleansed the citadel of its pollution. And the people responded by entering Jerusalem and celebrating Simon by waving palm branches to celebrate what he has done, the victory that they had won over against their enemies there in Jerusalem. And that was about 140 B.C., so about 170 years before this event, The palm branches were being used to celebrate the victory of God over the enemies of God. And so these waving of these palm branches, the laying them on the ground for the 
conquering king to ride upon, to trod down, is a sign of the recognition of Jesus as king. And the recognition that he is coming to cleanse, he is coming to remove the Gentiles. These people aren't looking for cleansing from their sin. They're looking for cleansing from the Gentiles, cleansing from the Gentile tyrants who have ruled over them for too long. Gentile tyrants who were crushing them underfoot, crushing them and beating them down and reducing them to servants. But again, that's not what Jesus is coming to do. He is coming to be their king, but a different king. He is coming to undo the tyranny that they live under, but not the tyranny of the Romans, but the tyranny of the sin itself, the tyranny of sin weighing them down, the tyranny of sin driving them from God, the tyranny of sin that stands between them and their covenant God, Yahweh. Sin that indwells them and all people. Sin that has always separated them. A sin that they had to have continual day and night sacrifices for. And a special atoning sacrifice each year. And then other sacrifices for various kinds of other sins that they might commit. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice to deal with their sin. The fullness of that tyranny of sin never quite reaching into their minds and their hearts to weigh them down completely. For they could just look at those sacrifices that they just did over and over and over again and think, well, I'm good to go. I'm all right now. Not understanding that those sacrifices are but temporary moments, temporary solutions, temporary ways to set aside that sin. And so they never imagined or grasped that the king that they wanted, the king that they truly needed, the king that they really desired deep down was a king who would take away their sin that would take away the true tyranny that we all endure day in and day out, the tyranny that we fight against, but also the tyranny we so often embrace. Tyranny we fight against to earn our way and earn our standing before others and before God, but also tyranny that we embrace in order to earn standing before others and to reject God. We want independence but we don't realize we need true independence from that tyranny of sin upon us so often. We so often fall into sin, and yet Jesus has come to save. Jesus has come to redeem. Jesus has come to take away that tyranny from us. And the people, as they see Jesus coming, we hear the shouting of the Hosannas. Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Honestly, that phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, could be said of almost any pilgrim coming into Jerusalem. For it is merely a quote from Psalm 118. A psalm that people would often be singing as they may be entering into Jerusalem. Singing the many psalms that follow after the psalm of ascents coming up from Jericho up to the Mount of Olives, which is a 3,800-foot climb. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level. 3,800 feet climbed over 12 or so miles from Jericho to Jerusalem. So it very much is appropriate to have psalms of ascent, for it is a great ascent into Jerusalem. And here as they reach that crest and are coming, and they see Jesus coming, the people begin shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they say something that they wouldn't normally yell. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. 
Hosanna in the highest. Oh, save us, Yahweh. Hosanna in the highest. Because that's what Hosanna means. Is oh, save. Oh, save Yahweh. Or Yahweh saves. It's like our Alleluia, which means praise the Lord. But we say Alleluia as a way of emphasizing, I think, sometimes, or sometimes forgetting what we're saying. And here these people are crying out as a greeting, Hosanna. Yahweh saves, Yahweh saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These people are indirectly crying out for Yahweh to act and to save them. Though in their minds, again, they're still thinking of the tyranny of Romans, the tyranny of Gentiles being in their midst. The tyranny of not fully obeying God because the Gentiles rule over them. But yet we cry out, O save us, Yahweh, O save us, our God. Hosanna in the highest. Save us to the greatest place. Save us in the greatest way, O Lord, is what we cry out. For it becomes a cry to the Lord. It becomes a cry and a confession that we need salvation. We need to be turned from our sins, O Lord. So come down and save us. Save us from our sins. Save us from our tyranny. Save us from ourselves. And that's the beauty of why I crossed myself during the Sanctus. For in crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, I'm crying out, Oh, save me, for you are the blessed one who has come in the name of the Lord. And I crossed myself to remember my baptism in that moment, to remember that the Lord is working in me. He is saving me from who I am. And I move forward in faith, trusting the promises of God in baptism. And I cross myself Anytime I sing the Sanctus because I want to remember my baptism where God claimed me as His own and began working His salvation in me, drawing me to faith and assuring me of salvation as I travel this road of faith, this journey of faith, this pilgrimage of faith. And so I cry out, Hosanna! O save me, O Lord! O save me! For blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, for Jesus comes in the name of the Lord for each of us. He comes toward each of us that we might shout Hosanna, that we might see Him and cry out, Oh, save us, our God. And blessed is the kingdom of our father David. For this is the true kingdom that Jesus brings, a spiritual kingdom amongst His people, a kingdom where He reigns over hearts and minds in the time being. His kingdom is not of this world at this moment. When He returns... In His second coming, it will be of this world. It will conquer all. It will renew all, reshape this world into a true and pure, beautiful creation once more. Greater than the creation that started before the fall. It will be renewed and redeemed in a way that we can never imagine. But at this moment, the coming of the kingdom is amongst God's people. And it spreads as we make known Jesus. It spreads as we cry out, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. We cry out, oh, save us. Save us from ourselves, oh, Lord. For there is tyranny upon us all. And that is what these people haven't fully grasped or realized this day. As they are celebrating Jesus on this Palm Sunday, celebrating Him being King and seeing Him enter Jerusalem to their shouts of acclamation, to their shouts of declaring Him to be their King. By the end of the week, so many in Jerusalem will have turned and cried, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Put Him to death! We don't want Him as King! 
Because more and more the people have realized that Jesus is not the Messiah they thought he would be. He is not the Messiah who will overthrow the Romans. But he is a Messiah who will save them and overthrow them. He will overthrow us by displacing us from trying to rule our lives. He will displace our authority and replace it with his own as we look to him in faith. As we look to him and trust what he has done and then we will be sent out to show others the same thing. To reveal to others this son of David who saves us from the brokenness, from the temptations, from the unruly wills and affections. He is the one who saves us. And he works in us each day to save us more and more to turn us from what we once were into what we are to become and to who we are to be. That is what Jesus has come this Palm Sunday to do, preparing Himself for that Good Friday Passion where He will accomplish our salvation through that cross, where He will be declared King. But a King who bears a cross, a King who wears a crown of thorns, a King who bears the marks of salvation for us, a King who is scourged, And put down a king who dies on behalf of his people. A king who takes away those sins of that people by dying. But that king will be raised once more. That king will come back to life. That king will be resurrected truly and fully in his physical body. He will be resurrected to new life to declare his true kingship over all things. That he is the son of God. God the son in flesh come to save God's people. And so he comes this Palm Sunday to declare that God is coming to save. God is coming to save his people, but not his people only, but the whole world. That all those who look to him in faith, all those who receive his promises, all those who receive that they need to be saved from who they are and that they need the forgiveness of God. All those who receive that receive the presence of God in their own hearts and minds, the Holy Spirit descending and being with them. All those who receive the reality of Scripture's teaching to us will receive the promise of renewal, the promise of salvation, the promise of being made like Jesus Himself, of being united to Jesus that we each might know the Father through Jesus, that we might see a good and gracious God who is perfectly just, but yet puts that justice upon His Son. And his son willingly receives that justice in order that forgiveness and mercy would be outpoured upon this earth and that all would be called to hear the name of Jesus, and that all would be invited to shout Hosanna. And so throughout this week, let us shout Hosanna. Even as we move toward that moment of ultimate betrayal, let us be stripped in our betrayal. Let us be stripped of everything that we think we have that we might more and more recognize shouting Hosanna is a shouting for salvation to come to me, for salvation to come to you. It's a confession of our need for Jesus. And so come and cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.